Hi, this is Robert Duncan McNeil, also known as Tom Paris from Star Trek Voyager. You're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to Season 4, Episode 24 of Commentary, Trek Stars, a show which deals with the work of Star Trek creators outside of Star Trek. I'm Mike. I'm Max. And today we are doing a, a one-shot, our fourth look at Nicholas Meyer's career. This time we're going to be looking at his uh, work as an Oscar-nominated screenwriter, having adapted his own book, mm-hmm. The 7% Solution. Yep. So this is a book which was written by Meyer, which he then adapted himself into the movie, which was directed by Herbert Ross. Um, It stars Nicole Williamson as Sherlock Holmes Mm -hmm. and Robert Duvall as Watson and Alan Arkin as Sigmund Freud. The movie was released in 1976, which was two years after the book. Uh, like I said, it was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, an award which it lost to William Goldman for All the President's Men. What are you going to do? It's William Goldman. Yeah, I mean, come on, right? So this is this is a movie which is uh, a Sherlock Holmes story in which Sherlock Holmes meets Sigmund Freud, essentially. Sure. We covered the book early on in our show. Yeah. And basically... Sherlock Holmes, being um, addicted to cocaine, uh, is going to kill himself uh, with that cocaine if he doesn't stop soon. And Well, he's not Keith Richards. No. He's got a limit. Yeah. And as a physician, Watson knows this. And he decides that the best shot at uh, recovery for Holmes is to take him to... Vienna, right? Yes. Yeah, take take him to Vienna. He tricks him into going into rehab. Right. By, which always with, works. It's, it's always the best course of action, for yeah, sure. Definitely never <laughs> fails or backfires. And he wants Sigmund Freud to treat him. Mm-hmm. So they set up an elaborate scenario in which... Uh, he's trying to track down his arch nemesis, Moriarty, who may or may not be the evil criminal mastermind that we're led to believe he is. And uh, he goes to Vienna, and in the process of this, he ends up going on an adventure to solve a, a case with, yes. the, with the help of Sigmund Freud. It is, it is, for the most part, about Holmes going to rehab. I would say that's not true. I would say that's true of the book, but the movie definitely takes a different um, approach to the uh, the story. Maybe. And, it's and still whole, like halfway into the movie that the, that the mystery gets going. It's slightly less than halfway into the movie. <laughs> okay. Um, which to me seems like kind of a mistake, but, you know, we still, well, whatever. We'll, we'll get into that in, in a second here. What The other thing that this, this movie and the book also did and does is um, sort of tell an alternate history to the character of Sherlock Holmes and basically um, says that what was going on in um, the canon 
was not actually what happened, but instead a story which Watson wrote to explain Holmes's disappearance from the world for uh, a stretch of time when everyone thought he was dead. Yes. It is a very strange position that Nicholas Meyer put himself in writing Sherlock Holmes fiction in this context. And mm-hmm. in order to make it work, he employed a very strange but perfectly reasonable approach of essentially admitting a level of fictionalization mm-hmm. in order to make the reality more plausible. I think it actually works really well. Yeah, and you know, in, in the book you have a few extra things which you can do in order to kind of sell it because you can present it as like a document which has been found and stuff like that whereas in the movie you're presenting this movie as a reality and the books which we know as a fiction and there's just some weird things depends on where you draw the line it's an adaptation of a book that's based on real documents okay okay i guess that could be that could be what it is so, before we get into that, you know, we will compare the book to the movie. But before we do that, what are your thoughts on just the movie itself? I think that both the book and the movie do a really good job of, of selling the reality, which is always sort of tricky. But I do think that um, in in all of these cases of all the adaptations of all of Nicholas Meyer's Sherlock Holmes things and all of his Sherlock Holmes stories in general, I mean, essentially this is probably the weakest adaptation of anything Nicholas Meyer ever did. Okay. Well, what do you mean? Like, what do, what do you mean by that? Well, like his movies, <clears throat> ones that he wrote and directed that aren't this one are better. And um, the other works that he did that were adapted are better. And I think it's largely because this movie is sort of based on a weird outlier. It is kind of about Sherlock Holmes going to rehab. And the movie adapts that faithfully, but it does have kind of an awkward time trying to figure out how to turn that into a movie. So you think that, like, Houdini was a better adaptation than this? Yeah. This is the only one that I mean, Sherlock Holmes thinks has been adapted into a movie. But, like, basically this is the most awkward one. And I think it's largely just because it's sort of dated and the other works sort of mm, shy away from those particular problems in more interesting and and sometimes worse ways, but the end result is more fruitful. Well, I mean, the fact that, I mean, if you look at his his adaptations, the things that he's um, made, which are based on other material, Mm -hmm. um, this is the only one which was ever based on his own material. Yep. Do you think that that had anything to do with it? Yeah. Yeah. I do. I think that that it's, it's tricky when you're essentially turning something that you worked on for a long time into something different. And I think that in a lot of, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think that this really didn't, didn't need to be turned into a movie as a book. It worked really well. And as a movie, it feels kind of weird. It's a, a, it's a very strange story and it doesn't really work as an action or a thriller or any sort of other type of genre story. It's a story where a, a famous detective, Gets off of drugs, mm-hmm. sort of. Okay. For for me, I, I do like this movie. I had never seen it before up until about well, about a half an hour ago, and oh, I 
Yeah. I mean, I had read the book uh, back when we covered Meyer very early on in our series, but um, I I just never got around to watching the movie. And I do enjoy this movie. I think that the book is probably better, although I do think that there were a few issues in the book. While I do like it, I think that that it had some weird issues um, in that, you know, yeah, it's a Sherlock Holmes story, so they feel the need to have a mystery, even though, like you're saying, it really is about Holmes going into rehab, and that's yeah. probably what it should focus on. Um, I mean, they kind of yeah. they kind of justify it in that, you know, they're saying, like, look, hypnotism may not be the best permanent solution to uh, beating cocaine. and Or even a halfway decent one. Or even a halfway decent one. And perhaps the thing which will help to uh you know get him on the road to recovery is to put his energy into his passion which is solving mysteries yes he's clearly an addict and he's got some serious psychological problems so um cultivate those yeah or you know just steer him away from the cocaine because certainly chasing murderers wouldn't get him killed oh no wait it's the other way around <laughs> So, um, I, I did like the, the movie, even though I do think the book is better, uh, but there were some weird things about it. Uh, for one thing, I think that the beginning felt kind of rushed and that the, the, the real heart of the story was sort of, um, almost glossed over in order to get to the kind of adventure element. And I think that the mystery was simplified to a point just to get to the big action set piece at the end, which is very strange. The action set piece where people kind of jog. And there's a, a train chase. Yeah, the, which, it's not much of a chase. Well, I mean, see, here's the thing about it, and I think we talked about this with the book. Like, the idea of a locomotive chase is about, that's about as exciting as it sounds which is not very exciting at all. And I don't know what you mean. One train chasing another train? Yeah. Does that sound at all exciting to you? It depends on which directions they're going. Okay, let's say that they're going uh, to the left. <laughs> they're both going to the left? Yeah. Sure, that would be a problem. And that's kind of what this is. Yeah. And that's kind of boring. Not nearly as boring as it was when it was described on the page. I don't know, man. I think that both of them are kind of, you know, you know, relaxed, laid back kind of pursuits. And I think that the locomotive chase in both the book and the movie are not nearly as awkward as the tennis scene. I don't have a problem with the tennis scene, which does not work at all. Tennis no. does not read any sort of excitement no the the tennis scene was fine especially in the book you know what it did was sort of provide insight into the character of freud and you know showing him and and what his uh um strengths were as an individual and how he was going to use his intellect to beat this guy who was physically superior to him and that plays in the movie just fine the problem that i have with it in the movie is the same thing that i have with the well one of the problems that i have with the train chase at the end is 
it takes up so much screen time that you're sacrificing all of these other things which are way more important to the story in order to cram this in. But when you're actually just watching the the tennis match in the movie, I, I think it, it's very interesting and cool and fun. and I liked it. And also I like seeing how racquetball was back then, you know, or tennis or whatever you wanted to call it, indoor tennis, but it's cool. I just call it tennis. All right. Doesn't matter. It's people dashing back and forth on a court, hitting a ball over a net. It's it's boring. Okay. So, in relation to the book, what do you think about this movie? How do you how do you think it compares? And I am repeatedly frustrated by people's um, tolerance of poor adaptations of things. About turning one thing that's perfectly good into another thing that's not nearly as good. About thinking that things belong in every imaginable form that somehow you can improve a thing by destroying it and making it into some other entirely different thing this is supposed to be a book Mm -hmm. that's the end so you don't uh, like the movie's existence essentially I think it's sort of a waste of time I think it's kind of it's sort of a waste of time it's sort of a waste of effort I mean ultimately I, I, I would have preferred if Nick Nolas Meyer had made an original movie. Like, well, I don't. I don't want to see him adapt his his books into another thing. I want to see him do something new. Well, there is something to be said for that. In fact, I just uh, heard about this the other day, which I found to be really interesting. Apparently, back before the um, James Bond movies were released, Ian Fleming wanted to make uh, TV movies out of them. Well, yeah. out of out of James Bond, out of the character. But instead of adapting these books which existed, he wrote original screenplays. Mm-hmm. And that seems to make a lot of sense. And what was kind of cool now, and I mean, we'll see, it's, it's more cool from the historical point of view than anything else is, you know, a lot of people have been um, hired by the estate, the Fleming estate, to write officially licensed uh, James Bond books mm-hmm. ever since Fleming uh, has died and they just announced that uh, they're they're going to be doing a new series of these books but what's cool about this series is that they're going to be adaptations of those screenplays which never uh, were produced so you're actually going to get to see at least in some form an original Fleming story but that's this is the neither most here backwards, nor there. ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Anyway, that's he wrote TV movies and they're adapting them into books just to get the stories out. I think, okay, more than that's ridiculous. But that 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 has nothing to do with what we're talking about. What what, what my point in bringing it up is that Ian Fleming saw what you were talking about, and instead of trying to cram uh, Casino Royale onto a, a television screen, he decided to write a new story based on that character which was more suited to the screen so i could see meyer doing that i i think in some ways that's what time after time is but in in a the flip side of that of course is that it's an extremely popular book and that's obviously what people wanted to be adapted and i can see meyer being like you know what I can make that into a good movie. Why not? 
So, so with, with that being said, I, I think that it's perfectly reasonable for him to to do a, a, a movie out of his book. And I think that it is a, a decent adaptation. I think that one of the, the interesting things about it is the tone seems to be very different. Like you're saying, this is a story about uh, Sherlock Holmes going into rehab, and that's obviously some uh, like a pretty heavy story. I mean, what the, the concept... I guess. It's sort of played for laughs, though. Well, in the movie, I think it is. In, 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 the, in the book, though... I mean, I, I always thought it was very sort of serious, and it's kind of like there, here's a guy who's known um, in in his literature as being a adventurer, and he had this weird, dark element to his character, which was never really fully dealt with. And now what we're going to do is deal with it, and we'll have an adventure too. But the main thing here is that we're going to deal with the fact that he is a drug addict. And there's a certain uh, seriousness which uh, is present in the book, which isn't present in the movie. In the movie, it was almost like a lighthearted, fun version of Sherlock Holmes, which was, to me, way more um, happy-go-lucky than the, any of the books were. You know? Well, it's peculiar. It's a strange. It's a strange scenario. You're, I mean, it, it is a. It is a Sherlock Holmes story, and it seems odd, but like ultimately, it is a weird thing to say that this is essentially fan fiction. Yeah, and it's fan fiction that is, in some ways, darker than the original material, which doesn't seem all that weird for fan fiction now. No, but at the time, it's a crazy notion of doing a dark story of a series that already pretty much always has a murder in it. Yeah, yeah. That's a strange scenario. So it makes a kind of sense that they would feel the need to make it a little bit goofy. And I think that's part of the problem. And I don't know if that's actually... Pre- I don't think that Nicholas Meyer actually intended that. I think that's just how it came out. And Maybe that's know. how it was directed. But, I mean, yeah. like, if you if you look at what he's written about the movie and, and listen to hear, you know, listen to him talk and stuff like that, it, it sounds like he's pretty satisfied with the finished product. I don't think I don't think that it's a it's a, a failure of any kind. I just think mm-hmm. that it's sort of a, a shame that we don't have the freedom to do what should be done. You know, it was it was kind of funny in a sense looking at this uh, movie. There's a lot of people who have a lot of Sherlockians, or what are they called? I call them Sherlocksmiths. Okay. They call themselves Sherlockians. Do they? Okay. Which I find to be a great waste of an opportunity. Okay. Well, those people, they, a lot of them have been rather critical of the Robert Downey Jr. stars, the Guy Ritchie movies, Mm -hmm. for being, you know, basically big action movies, you know, sort of like the Pirates of the Caribbean versions of Sherlock Holmes. And watching this, I kind of see the same thing. I mean, the action set pieces aren't as big, but I mean, this movie does have a scene where completely logical Sherlock Holmes has the villain at gunpoint, and because the villain kind of eggs him on, he decides to drop the gun in favor of having a sword fight with him. Yeah. That doesn't make a lot of sense at all, you know? 
That's a lot less logical than what you would find in the Guy Ritchie movies. I don't know, man. I mean, like, I don't think that's even all that illogical or even all that out of character for Sherlock Holmes. I mean, even while he was in some ways sort of um, clinical and almost robotic, he was also still fairly regularly um, saddled with the burden of being gentlemanly. Yeah. but He did sort of follow the rules. But is this really a rule that he needed to follow? I mean... I think he did. Okay. I don't know. It just seemed weird. And also, the um, like we were talking about, you know, the kind of tendency to emphasize the action elements in the movie yeah. uh, instead of the, the story elements or the character elements that were present in the book really makes me think that there are some pretty strong parallels between this and the Guy Ritchie movies. I can see that. I don't think that the Guy Ritchie movies are particularly inaccurate. Uh, like I, no, I they're regularly... just kind of, kind of uh, blown up a bit. Yeah, and I think that the criticism of those movies is not that they are inaccurate portrayals of Sherlock Holmes, that they're somehow like betrayals of the character or the, the genre. I think they're just signs of the times. It's not about, it's not, it doesn't reflect very poorly on the way Sherlock Holmes has been treating so much as it reflects poorly on the way Hollywood works now. Yeah. And, and I, I do like those movies uh, to some extent. I mean, I like the first one a lot, and the second one I think is decent. But. You know, I mean, you compare them to like the the series with Jeremy Brett, you know, which is like slavishly true to the um, canon, and it doesn't work as well. You know, it just doesn't. Okay. <clears throat> um, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people who've played Sherlock Holmes over the years, and I think they've all done a pretty good job. I mean, like ultimately, I think that the the the, the shocking and sort of strange thing about it is that the the new Sherlock series is unbelievably bizarrely accurate to the books despite being radically different in almost every imaginable way it's present day it's there are computers and he's good with software it's all kinds of bizarre but it's dead on it yeah. is dead on it's strange how how flexible the character and the the setting is considering you can do that and i think ultimately that is the most the most damning indictment of the the Robert Downey Jr. movies that they picked the wrong things to be faithful to. Oh, that could be. I I still haven't seen Sherlock. I know I need to, but, you know, I've got other things I'm watching too, you know? It's it's only so many hours in the day. I know, but there are only like six of them. But they're all like two hours long. Like an hour and a half. So... As far as uh, Trek collaborators in this movie, uh, there's only one that I noticed, and that's Joel Gray, who, he's only been in one episode of Star Trek, hasn't he? he was I in, don't know what you're talking about. He's the, the guy, in, in this movie, he's the guy who uh, they spot who's following them, and then, like, he's the guy who's hired to get the woman back onto cocaine, so... Yeah. They're following him, and then they, like, capture him or whatever and take him back to their place, and then they're talking about him and not paying attention to him, and he sneaks out the door, and then they grab him again, and then he reveals uh, what the plan is, and then that's when they get onto their train chase. 
that dude. Okay. He's in. Uh, he's in the player, as himself. At oh. one point, Tim Robbins goes up to him and says, "Hey, how's it going?" And he's like, oh, "I'm doing okay. I have that tie." What? Yeah, it's just the scene. That's what he does in the movie. Okay. Anyway, he he was in um, an episode of Voyager called Resistance, where he played a guy named Calum, who thought that Janeway was his daughter. What? I don't remember this episode exactly. Uh, I have no idea what that is. I thought he had a bigger role because, I mean, he's at conventions and stuff all the time. There was this whole thing at the the Vegas convention that I was at a couple of years ago where um, they did a, a panel with uh, Shatner and Mulgrew together. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Joel Gray just shows up. Yeah. And, like, crashes the panel, and then it becomes, like, Kate Mulgrew, William Shatner, and Joel Grey. And it's like, Joel Grey is, like, a big name in acting circles. I mean, he really is. I'll just say I was wrong. There are definitely three. Oh, okay. So there, there's, like, nine nine episodes. Yeah. They're not long, though. Okay. But I, I just assumed that he had been in more stuff. I, I assumed that maybe he played, like, a Q or something like that. But But, no. So, hmm. anyway, he's Fair. in it. He's a good actor. He's, you know, he won the Oscar for um, Cabaret, and I think that's his big claim to, th- claim to fame. But um, Well, that's not nice. He was in this movie. <laughs> I've never seen Cabaret. but That's good. Okay. But anyway. Well, do you have any um, final thoughts on The 7% Solution? Um, years before I saw this movie, for many years actually, I was, um, I was really curious about what the title was in reference to. And then I found out and I thought, wow, that's super weird. Yeah. And they briefly touch on it here. They deal with it more in the, um, book here. They're just like, he always had that 7% solution. Yeah. Um, it's not like a solution to a problem that involves the very key quotient of seven percent. Well, but it's a it's a double meaning, right? Sort of. It's a seven percent solution of cocaine, but it's also the solution to the problem of. Yeah. yeah anyway. Okay. Well, it's not really the same thing as using the word solution in in the context you expect it to. I mean, it's a mystery. It's got Sherlock Holmes in it. And it's not the solution to a mystery or or a problem in the the story. Yeah. It's a very strange title. Yeah. And when you read the book and you see the movie, it's sort of obvious that the title and everything about it is about Sherlock Holmes and rehab. Mm Mm-hmm. And the mystery is really weirdly present. Because it doesn't really need to be there. So, I mean, just discussing Sherlock Holmes, you know, we, we've got uh, Sherlock, which stars Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm-hmm. A Star Trek alum, obviously. Well, a Sherlock alum. Oh, he's both, right? Uh, we've also got Elementary, which has a number of uh, Star Trek people associated with it for one thing you've got robert doherty he's the the showrunner i believe right on elementary on elementary and he he has worked on voyager 
um, as a writer, which is kind of cool. He wrote uh, 15 episodes of the show, uh, including um, Endgame, the very last episode. So he's he's running Elementary, and you've also got Robert Hewitt Wolf, who's a staff writer. So that's cool. And then we have one more uh, Sherlock Holmes thing, which is going to be coming out relatively soon, and that's called Mr. Holmes, which is a movie about um, an old retired Sherlock Holmes played by Ian McKellen, which is kind of cool. It's uh, going to be directed by Bill Condon, which is cool. And uh, it could be interesting. Yeah, yeah um, it's sort of odd that Ian McKellen has not played Sherlock Holmes yet, considering how much he looks like him. Yeah. I don't know what Sherlock Holmes looks like, but... He's always described as being very gaunt, very tall. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And, you know, British. Yeah, Mika sees that, too. He's got the main three, the big three. Yeah. So that that's uh, something which is coming out next year, so look for it. It should be cool. For my final thoughts on The 7% Solution, I guess I would just say that uh, it is a good movie, it's not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination. I do think it's not as good as the book, but I think that it does offer a few things that are missing from the book. Um, mainly a, a sort of light, fun humor, which, uh, while maybe isn't the best choice for this story, is an interesting thing to see. All right, b- before we go... Um, I just thought we would touch on sort of a follow-up to our Houdini discussion. I can't remember whether or not we actually talked about this, um, but... We I, didn't. Okay, we'll bring it up. I don't know what it is. <laughs> uh, in in our Houdini episode, I did mention briefly that uh, it felt like this was a re-edit of a more classically styled form of... Television well, movie. Yeah, you did You did present the question, like, do you think that there was an original version? Right. And I said something along the lines of maybe, but, like, it doesn't seem way off because it is sort of about the guy and yeah. all of the weird, annoying MTV-style editing things seem to be about his psychology. Yeah. So maybe it's not re-edited? Right. Well, it turns out that it was re-edited. Uh, there was uh, a se- there have been a series of interviews recently with Nicholas Meyer. Some of them in promoting Houdini, and some of them in regards to his recent appearance at uh, the Star Trek convention in London. And in those interviews, he has talked about how um, the version which they turned in, he calls it the Lionsgate version, which appeared over in Europe, uh, was I think originally longer. And uh, also, it lacked the voiceover. And there mm-hmm. were, I think, a few other things. And he said that, uh, you know, basically, when the History Channel got it, they were like, uh, this isn't going to play well for American audiences, so we better dumb it down a little bit. And he said that he's happy with the Lionsgate version, but he does not like the History Channel version. People are always adding voiceover to dumb things down. Luckily for us, the movie did just come out on Blu-ray, and it would appear to be that original version. So for those people who are interested 
in um, seeing what the original cut of Houdini was, or for those people who haven't seen it and want to see it in its original state, then you're in luck. One other thing to note about Houdini, which I thought was kind of interesting, which you know showed up in one of these interviews, is you know he talked about how you know this is adapted from his his dad's book and everything yeah. like that, and how when he was approached to do it, I think by Gerald Abrams, uh, JJ's dad, you know he said, "Yeah, I'll do it," but I've been wanting for years to adapt my dad's book, and no one wants to just pay the the rights fees for it which is like 1500 bucks or something like that you know so if you do that then i'll do it and uh he said that it was always intended to be like a two-night event and he wanted it to be called the first part to be called becoming houdini and the second part to be called being houdini and you know the studio or, or whoever was like that's dumb but he did say that the split and everything and the way that it's structured was maintained. That was his original version. It should have been called Houdini Begins. Yes. Not Houdini Rises. Yes. But anyway, so so that's that's kind of an interesting little bit. And then the other thing which I, I thought was kind of interesting in regards to all of this is that he was asked about how he didn't direct it, how someone else was directing it. And the person who they hired to direct it uh, was someone who he was happy with and someone whose you know material he thought gelled with him. And in the end, he, he was happy with the finished product, although when asked if he was there on set, he said that he was on set for part of it, and he was talked into leaving, and he wished he would have stayed. And I thought, boy, like when he said that, I'm like, is he basically saying that they messed this up? But then when people ask him about the, you know, how he how he was, uh, thought what he thought about the direction, he was like, oh, no, that's good. So I'm curious as to what he means by that. It's interesting. And one more thing about uh, Nicholas Meyer, which is um, probably of significance to the 7% solution and what we're talking about here and everything, is that he is currently working on a Sigmund Freud television series, along with Frank Spotnitz of yeah. X-Files fame. I'm looking forward to the episode where Sherlock Holmes shows up for good rehab. That would be awesome and if they, they did that. And then they play tennis. That would be cool. Oh, man, they got to do that. 45 minutes. He said that he's writing the first two episodes and he may direct one of them, so... That would be cool. It I'm be, hoping it's animated. It would be excellent. We shall see. Well, it's been fun talking about the 7% solution today, but this isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week. So here's a look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. Also, I never know whether it's pronounced Babel or Babel, so I always feel um, scared to talk about it. <laughs> that you don't want to bring it up in polite conversation. Yeah, Journey to the moon, you know. You know, journey to journey. Yeah. Journey to, to the to, center to, of the to earth. To the journey, yes. Earl Grey. Patrick Stewart said, look, we can have that scene where Worf explains why he's in the movie, or we can have my Mambo scene, but we can't have both. <laughs> so. The Orb. He just completely sells it, and he is Benjamin Sisko by this point. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. Well, he better be Benjamin Sisko by this point, yeah. Matthew. There's only one episode left in the series. This is true. This is true. To the journey! 
And this is, I would dare even say, when he uh, starts falling in love with Captain Janeway. This is the road that leads to the bathtub. From this point forward, he is just ever so slowly falling for her. And the monkey. Warp 5. They were just like, okay, we know this is the end, so screw it. We're just going to do whatever the hell we want. And putting Shatner in there, it's just like, why not? Who cares? The Ready Room. Also, one other thing it reminded me of when they're in space, the escape pod that Trip and Kaitama use. Did that not look to you guys like the ship from Pigs in Space without the engines? Yes. Oh my gosh. You're right. You're absolutely right. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. There are two notes that I seriously made. There were two notes that I made. Mm -hmm. One of them is, I love Riker's TV. I question what he's watching. Commentary, Trek stars. Robert Wise. If he's on the bridge of the Voyager, he's not even back at Harry Kim's station, right? He's one of the extras in the background who has to stand because he doesn't even have a chair. Literary treks. You're waiting for one of the core cast of Vanguard to show up in these books. You're going to be waiting a long time. Because as long yep. as the three of us have anything to say about it, it ain't going to happen. Continuing mission. The big thing here is I did it all for the cost of 3ds max which i bought with an educational discount so like 300 bucks i don't think you can get an educational discount on materials to build an (laughs) actual set can you axonar the official podcast when I learned the concept behind Prelude to Axanar that was going to be a History Channel style documentary, I just, I got so excited. Like, my favorite Star Trek book ever is David Goodman's Federation, the first 150 years, because I just love, uh, it's, it's a history book. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for our other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. One way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm, you'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll all join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Um, yeah, I mean, like, like we said last week, the reason why we're doing 7% Solution is because that's what our Patreons um, suggested we do. And we are going to do an audio commentary for this movie. So uh, if you are a Patreon subscriber... And and you you contribute at that level, which isn't a lot. I think it's like two bucks or three bucks a month. Yeah. Then uh, you can hear us talk about the seven percent solution in great detail in in a couple of weeks.
You can contact us any number of ways. You can email us at comtrackstars at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at comtrackstars. And you can also find us on our website, commentarytrackstars.com, where we do commentary trackstars off topic with our friend Brandon. Uh, You can also contact us on trek.fm. Just go to trek.fm slash contact. You can leave a voicemail. Uh, just look on the sidebar of the show page, and uh, you can little click the little button and then leave us a message. You can also um, contact us or as a network on Twitter at trek.fm. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm, where you'll find the Babel Conference. Type in the Babel Conference, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and, and you'll find that there. It's a little forum kind of thing, and uh, we we can let you in. It's a, it's a closed forum, but we'll let you in if you ask. And, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, where, where else? Where else? I mean, I guess it, I could give you, like, our home address or something, but that's That's not a not good idea. idea. No. All right. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps us bring commentary, Trek Stars, and all of our other shows to you each week. And our sponsor for this show is Audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to read all of the books you've always wanted to read but never thought you'd have the time for. As a Trek.fm listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with a 30-day trial to see just how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trek.fm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trek.fm. And we thank Audible for supporting Trek FM and commentary Trek Stars. And you can even find the 7% solution on there. So go check it out. All right. Well, that's it for our fourth uh, look at Nicholas Meyer. Yep. And uh, we will be back next week with Matt from the Delta Quadrant and the Nerd Party to discuss David Mack and his work on Deep Space Nine.